Good morning, VCF. My name is Rajiv Nandakumaran, and I will be preaching today. The co's are on sabbatical uh, right now, and so we are praying for them. They have three months um, to get rejuvenated and hear from God, and so we're excited for the three months because God could do so much in three months, so continue to pray for them. And over the course of the next couple of months, three months, um, we'll all be pinch hitting <laughs> for Pastor Co. So today is kind of part three of a trilogy that Jihong started a few weeks ago. And it was so compelling that I felt like God is continuing a work with respect to the spirit, what it means to live in the spirit, what it means to put on your new self um, and separate from the flesh. And um, hopefully, so this is the trilogy, this is part three, and hopefully this is not the worst of the three, because <laughs> sometimes in trilogies, part three isn't that good. Uh, but we're going to do our best uh, today. And I was really touched by what Jihong spoke about. If you guys haven't heard the sermon from two weeks ago, um, I was really touched by one thing that he said, and he said, Part of living in the new life and taking off the old man, so to speak, uh, our old sin nature, is that God has to undragon us. And the undragoning process, if you remember, it was an example from the Chronicles of Narnia. The undragoning process is, is something that we have no power to do. We have absolutely nothing to do with the undragoning of our old self. So we completely need God. And then Pastor Ko talked about um, what it means to have the grace of restraint on our life. And putting on Christ is not just something that pushes us forward, it does. But there's also a, a, a grace to restrain us. And the freedom in God is different from the world. When uh, he, he quoted Jihong's example of when Jihong had to put on the humility of God, humility that he wanted to grow in, it actually restrained him. It, 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 the way that it propelled him was by restraining him. And Pastor Ko used the analogy of we want to be arrows. We want to be arrows that just shoot out and keep hitting different marks, but we actually have no impact. What we really are are bows because we get bent back. And um, both of these sermons really touched me. And so today, what I actually want to do is speak about how the new man, the new spiritual life that we have, the new heavenly garments that we actually put on, how this changes the way we relate to delight and desire. And in delight and desire are interesting because even the way that these last three weeks happened, when Jihong spoke, when he gave the word, I something in me grew in terms of desire. I was like, you know what? The church and myself have to grow in this knowledge of what it means to live in the Spirit. And then when Pastor Ko spoke, the, the desire grew even more. And then this week, as I was praying for you guys, it turned into conviction. And it was no longer just desire, but it was a command. And I think that that's a beautiful metaphor for how God's desire in us, in the new spirit, in the spiritual man actually works. It starts with maybe a thought. It starts with an inkling. It starts with a leaning. It starts with a love. Something, something pricks at your soul, in your spirit. And then it grows. It grows. And then it's not even desire anymore. It's just what you do. And I believe that in the spirit, that's what desire looks like. But before we go, uh, before we go into 
specifically desire and delight, there's some things that I think we have to dive into from a theological standpoint. So I guess the first half of whatever I say today will be more based on some central core things that we need to think about our Christianity and our faith life, and then we'll go into desire and delight later. So here's the first question I have for you, and it might seem like an obvious one. Do you live like you are saved, or do you live like your humanity has to add to your salvation in some way? And this might seem like an obvious thing because every Christian will say, well, of course, we're saved by the grace of God. But the way that we sometimes walk out our Christian life is we actually act as if some of our humanity has to add to our salvation. So let me just look at something from Colossians 2. Jihong and Pastor Ko read from Colossians 3. I saw something in Colossians 2 verses 11 to 15. I'm reading in the NRSV, Colossians 2, verses 11 through 15. In him also you were circumcised with the spiritual circumcision by putting off the body of the flesh in the circumcision of Christ. When you were buried with him in baptism, you were also raised with him through faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. And when you were dead in trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive together with him when he forgave us all our trespasses, erasing the demands, erasing the record that stood against us with its legal demands. I want you to focus on verse 13. And when you were dead in trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive together with him when he forgave us all our trespasses. That means when you were dead, when you could do nothing, God made you alive. Romans 5, 6 through 8 says, while we were still sinners, Jesus died for us, right? While we were still sinners, Jesus died for us. And then it goes on to say, it's rare that we would even die for people, for good people, people that are noble. That's rare. But God came to us at our weakest point to reconcile us to him. Now, here's the thing. Most of us in our Christian life, we will take this idea of, yes, we were nothing, we are weak, we're broken, and then God rescued us. And we will take that as a one-time acknowledgement in our Christian life. That becomes like this one-time proclamation, maybe when we get baptized or maybe early in our Christian life. That's this acknowledgement that we had nothing to do We had nothing to do with our salvation. This acknowledgement is a one-time thing. And I want to say to you today that this is part of the reason why most of us struggle with living in the Spirit. Because the acknowledgement that we can do nothing, that we are nothing without God, that it was in our utter brokenness that God came and lifted us up. It was in that space. The fact that we acknowledge it once or twice in our Christian life is probably the reason why we don't actually know how to undragon ourselves and live in the normal Christian life, live in the new person, the new being, the rebirth that God has for us through Jesus. It is not a single acknowledgement type of revelation. And maybe there's some of you today where in your Christian life, you feel like, you don't really understand what it means to be saved because you just thought salvation was something that happened once and it's done and now we can live. 
And that's true. It was a one-time thing when Jesus died and resurrected. But when we work out our salvation with fear and trembling, we actually come back every day to this place that while we were dead in our trespasses, God rescued us and made us alive. This is very important. This is very important. Don't overlook this. Because our Christian life day to day, when we have quiet time, when we, when we are pursuing a new work, when we are relating to our family every single day, we have to come back to this place of acknowledgement that while we were still sinners, Jesus died for us. It is not a one-time acknowledgement, it is a daily acknowledgement. And the people that I've noticed that live with the daily acknowledgement that they are nothing without Jesus are the ones that experience the most breakthrough in their life over addiction, over their own sin life, and actually moving into the exploits of God with the polish of the Holy Spirit on them. Because people who know that every second of the day they can't do anything without God are the ones that tend to see miracles, signs, and wonders and are the ones that seem to be joyful all the time. And I want you and I to walk our life in that in such a manner. That's why for me, every morning, I, it's, this is a very practical example, I start with the Jesus prayer. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy upon me, a sinner. And I say that as many times as I can, not because of some legalistic requirement, but It's because every day, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, I need you. I'm a sinner. Every single moment, I need you. Whether I had a good day with God the day before, whether I had a bad day with God the day before, whether I spoke brilliantly the day before or I failed or Lydia and I fought the day before or Lydia and I are doing great or me and my I'm a great father or I'm a terrible father that day. It doesn't matter. Every day I start by saying, God, when I was dead, when I was evil, as I was evil, you came and called me unto you. What that does is it establishes in my spirit the knowledge and also in my heart and my mind, the knowledge that I cannot move, I have no fruit in me to offer the world if God doesn't come and rescue me every single day. And I wonder if this could be the missing link in some of our lives today because we don't actually acknowledge the very bare bones idea of the cross every single day into our life. The very idea that we have to be rescued every day, not just not just in our broken moments, not just when we first came to Christ, but that acknowledgement is every single day, right? Because if we don't do that, we will rely on our Christian upgrades from day to day. We will rely on the flesh to get us through that day, and we can't. We actually are, the flesh is dead, and it is Christ in us that has to activate. And so, I want us to try this just uh, in a very practical way every single day. You don't have to say the Jesus prayer. But you, when you wake up in the morning, acknowledge what the resurrection life of, did for you. Acknowledge it. Acknowledge what, what that the fact that God has to come to you today and take you with him 
to the heavenly realm in order for you to live a fruitful life and honestly, in order for you to live the normal Christian life. Okay, so let's get away from the single acknowledgement to an everyday acknowledgement. I believe that if we can live in this space, if we can, if we can know that we know that we know that Christ died for us when we had nothing to offer him and when we were completely lost, those of us that can live in that form of gratitude will live in the spirit at a much, at a much more frequent pace than those of us who have acknowledged it once or sparingly and think that is enough to carry them on in the race. I don't want to belabor that point, but I want to belabor that point. (laughs) Think about what it means to work out your salvation. When we work out our salvation, that means we acknowledge the cross and we acknowledge the work that only God could do in us Every single day. Yes, it happened and it doesn't have to happen again. But it has to enact on us daily. And this is very difficult to stomach. I can see how this is very difficult to stomach in our context. See, because in our context, especially in America, the language of America is, what are you going to do next? What must we be do? What, 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 must, what was, must we be doing right now? Or how productive should you be? Or what's your next move, right? If you're an entrepreneur, if, if you start things or if you're creative or, or people always ask me, what, what do you do? What are you working on? What's your next move? What are you going to do next? And what it does is naturally in my flesh, it makes me have to have an answer. (laughs) I have to say something. And it makes, and it puts this unspoken pressure on me to have to create a life out of nothing. And so the very language of the world, the very context in which we live in is not conducive to the fact that you need Jesus at such a micro level every single day. The language of our culture works counterintuitively to what the normal Christian life is. And we're always pigeonholed to talking about life like we are initiating something or working on something or doing something. And this makes it very difficult to know the depths that God, the depths of what God wants to do and the depths and the fact that God wants to enact upon us first. We are not the initiator of anything. God does something and he does it in the, he's the beginning, the middle and the end and we are used in the process. And maybe you're around a culture, maybe in your workplace or in your family or in a space of achievement where you always feel, where the language is, hey, what are you doing? What is the responsibility on you? And while that's good in some sense, when we take our human responsibility seriously, we must never forsake the fact that, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy upon me, a sinner, every single day. Because if you don't fully know that God saved you when you could do nothing, and can still do nothing without him, then you will be constantly negotiating how much of your life belongs to you and how much of your life belongs to God. We negotiate with God when we don't know what belongs to Him. And here's the thing, have you ever negotiated with somebody? The object of a negotiation is for somebody to get something and for the other person to get something else, right? 
If I'm negotiating with you, I'm trying to keep something and you're, and I'm trying to give you something. With God, there is no negotiation. There, we don't negotiate. Negotiation is not a word when it comes to your relationship with God. If you feel like you negotiate with God, even if you don't say it, but you actually do it, we've got to throw it away. That's part of the old man. The old man negotiates. The new man doesn't negotiate. We just, we, we're dead. <laughs> so we have no negotiation, negotiating power. See, I know I'm negotiating with God, and for you it might be different, but I know I'm negotiating with God when I don't really think he cares about something, and so I go ahead and engage with it myself. I used to never think God cared about money. I used to never think he cared about what car I drove or how, what job I worked in. That was a big one. I never used to think he cared about those things. See, I always thought he cared about Christian things because I didn't think those things were necessarily Christian. I, think, I thought those things were just how we live day to day. And what I realized is I would do things myself with respect to these, with finances and, and things that I didn't really think God cared about. I would go on and engage in my own way. And I realized the reason why is because I, hadn't, I, I was still negotiating with God. I was still negotiating my way through discipleship. Oh God, these things belong to you and these things belong to me. And that's indicative of a person who doesn't fully know or believe that they are saved every single day. Because when you are saved by no uh, ability of your own, then all negotiations are off. It's interesting. I love Paul's negotiation in Philippians 3, verses 3 to 9. And this is before the famous passage where he talks about pressing on towards the goal and detaching himself from the past, right? Here's what he says. We'll start Philippians 3, verses 3 to 9. For it is we who are, circum- who, who are the circumcision, who worship in the Spirit of God and boast in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh, even though I too have reasons for confidence in the flesh. If anyone else has reason to be confident in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, a member of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Yet whatever gains I had, these I have come to regard as loss because of Christ. More than that, I regard everything as lost because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For this sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I regard them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but one that comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. This is, in my opinion, the negotiations of all negotiations. Because all the things that were great about him, 
all the things that he had reason to boast or all the things that could actually help him in his calling, right? You, you would think that all those credentials would actually help him in his calling, in his purpose. Now, Paul negotiates with himself and says, all of that is garbage, dung. All of that is filth compared to who he is now in Jesus. This is huge because in accepting that Jesus saved us when we could not do it for ourselves, what we have negotiated is that there is nothing left for ourselves on the table. Paul says, I have nothing left. My new identity and everything I am is founded in Jesus. And I think it's, I think it's easy for us to hold on to things and achievements um, that we think is going to help us into the new life of Christ. I remember when my mom passed away when I was little, when I was nine, um, my brother and I got baptized. We became Christian that year. But one of the, and, and so God was getting a hold of us, but one of the things that was difficult is that with her death came a death in what it felt like for someone to have pride in you, right? There, there's, there's nothing like the pride that comes from a mother to their child. Even, even with my children, Lydia, their mom, when Simone presents an artwork from school or something like that, for me, it's like I get nervous because that's more junk in our house. <laughs> and for Lydia, she's overjoyed. She, she's like, wow, look at this. And my response is I have some pride, but not like her. And I see that even in my own house. And I remember that a mother's role in their child is to have that deep sense of pride and to validate their child in such a unique way. And so when I didn't have that anymore, what I tried to do is I tried to take achievement and hold it. One, because I thought it would make the people around me happy and be like, and to let them know, hey, I'm okay. I'm dealing, I'm dealing with her death, but look what I'm doing. I'm getting straight A's. I'm, I'm playing sports. I'm in extracurricular activities. And I started to hold on to these things with great pride because I felt like it was all I had. I remember in 1992, there was this, uh, the, the, the dream team played in the Olympics, the famous basketball team that's considered as the greatest basketball squad in, of all time. And McDonald's used to give us cards, <laughs> dream team upper deck basketball cards when you buy a burger or something like that. And I collected all of them. One, because I like McDonald's. And two, I went for the, bi- I went, went for the cards. And we collected all of them. There was, like, there was a, quite a bit. And the ones that we couldn't collect, I went and found at basketball card shops. And the reason why it was so important to me is because here was, a, here was a group of players that represented the United States and played basketball at such an elite level that, it, that I was so inspired by it that every day as an eight-year-old, nine-year-old kid, I would open it and I would just look, stare at every one of the cards. And I would look at the back and look at all the statistics because their achievements really spoke to me. Now, there's nothing really wrong with that. But, but what, I, what I noticed is that I started to realize that achievements, talents, and my gifts meant so much to me. And I actually took that with me in my journey of Christianity. 
where I started to, I started to convolute my abilities and what I can present to the table with what God has done for me. And for me, they were almost one in the same. I didn't come to the realization of what Paul was saying, that all those things are rubbish. They can't actually do anything for you until much later in my life. So that is the, that's my first point with respect to um, moving in the Spirit, is we've got, to, we've got to know where our salvation comes from, and we've got to let go of negotiations. My second point is this, and it's in Galatians chapter 2. And it's just two verses. Galatians chapter 2, verses 19 and 20. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. And the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So here's the thing. You can die to the law. And a lot of people, they enjoy the fact that we are no longer under the law. I've even met a lot of non-Christians that love this aspect of Christianity, who are no longer under the law. But when you are no longer under the law, you have to transfer the ownership. Jiang said transfer the management, right? We're under new management to a master, and that's Jesus. But some of us are happy that the law doesn't apply, but you're still in bondage because, yeah, you're not under the law, but you haven't submitted yourself to a master. And, and what happens is this is actually worse because what happens is you don't actually benefit, you don't benefit from the law because you're no longer under it and you don't actually, you don't actually benefit at all from the normal Christian life or the new man or the new woman that you were created in and you're kind of stuck in this middle and I would venture to say that most Christians are here. Most, most of us are in a space where we, we, we know that we're not under the law, but we actually haven't, cre- we haven't uh, said that we're fully alive in Christ. We're kind of in the middle where we're, where we're partly trying to be in under, under the new life and we're still, and we're not under the law, but we've created another law. We've created another, another, another thing that we follow. And I want to say to you, if this is you today, I want you to pick one. <laughs> and I hope you pick the latter. I hope you pick the new life. But staying in the middle is an utter waste of time and it's actually the cause for the most unhappiness. I have met hundreds, and this is not a this is not a um exaggeration. I have met a hundreds in my lifetime of disillusioned Christians because they don't know what the point is. They're not happier. They're not living in a, in, in a fuller way. They are constantly looking their life with respect to the world, and they're always wondering why they're not getting that. So see, their eyes are focused on, on the world and how the world does things, and yet they can't, and, and that prevents them from surrendering totally their life to God. And the second aspect of Galatians 2, 19 to 20 is this. Because you no longer live, which means you no longer have authority over your life, 
Okay, that's what it means to no longer live. That's what it means to put, put off the old, is that you no longer have authority over your life. You have given up and surrendered your life to God, and you have died to your own logic. Logic, right? This is very important. Because our minds and the way we think can be a huge blockage to living in the Spirit. We constantly tell God that something doesn't make sense. You see, when we, when we ask God for wisdom, typically if it doesn't make sense, then we don't actually do it because our mind is always trying to be the Lord of us. And our mind cannot be the Lord of us. God has to be the Lord of us. And here's the reason why we resort to logic, because we're missing something in, chap- in verse 20. And the life so after, after he says, I have been crucified with Christ and it's no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. We usually stop there, right? Because we like how that sounds. But listen to this. And the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So that means what, 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 what God is saying is this. And the life that you live in the flesh, see, you didn't kill yourself. You're still living in the body. I have, you have to live by faith in the Son of God. That's what Paul's saying. I have to live by faith. We don't actually apply faith to any of this talk. We think that living in the Spirit or, or living in the new man, we sometimes overlook the fact that the idea of faith doesn't have to be exercised. But actually, the only way you can live in the Spirit is by faith because it's not really data-driven. If you... If you if you are living opposing to your sinful nature that is rampant in your, in your body and all the things that you would rather do, if you're living in opposition to that, then the only way to do that is in faith, is by faith. And many of us forget we need to exercise faith in every decision because if it's Christ that lives in you, the only way you can relate to him is by faith. Remember, the Bible says that it is impossible to please God without faith. Now, if faith is not applied to your daily decisions, then you've actually changed verse 20. And now verse 20 will say, it is both Christ and I that still live. (laughs) That's really what we're saying. If you don't exercise faith in the normal Christian life by putting on the new self, then it is not, it's still you and God that live and are competing for space in your body. And I wonder if some of you feel the competition right now, today. You feel the competition between you and God because God is gracious and he's there, but you have not fully allowed your mind and your logic and all the things that you think is best for your life to come under him. And you feel a tug, and what I would call that is competition between the flesh and the spirit. And the only way to get rid of that is to exercise faith. And when you exercise faith, the competition dies. It's no longer, you will always have the flesh and you will always struggle, but you will see that God takes the majority. And as he takes the majority of you and your mind and the way things work, then the new management will happen. He will, he will take over and he will make decisions for you. And you can only do this by building a habit 
in small decisions, small decisions. Maybe start with your purchases, the things that you buy. Um, start with your relationships, who you befriend. Start with all these small areas and, and surrender. I'm not telling you to suspend your mind. Your brain is important. But the authority of your logic has to be God and not you. Do not resent, do not resort to your own understanding. And don't think that faith is something only for big things. You know, if you're, you want to buy a house and you're believing and so you ask all your friends to pray for you. See, I'm living by faith because I'm, I need faith in that, that area. That's true. But faith is actually a daily um, decision to live in the spirit. You have to have faith and you have to believe that God rewards those that live in the spirit, in the new man. Okay, so that's like the backdrop and that's most of our time today. So the remaining time is the sermon, okay? So, but I believe that the backdrop was very important and what we're going to go and how we're going to conclude today is we're going to go directly into desires and asking. And so we want to go to Matthew chapter 7. And I'm going to reference another scripture that we won't have time to read. But Matthew chapter 7. So now that we know, or now that we've kind of got a clear understanding of how to function in the spirit, how to put on the new self and put off the old self, right? From the last two weeks, from Jihan's message, Pastor Ko's message. We want to know how does this relate to asking God? How does the new man, new woman ask of God? And how do we actually locate desires? Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 to 11. Ask, and it will be given you. Search, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be open for you. For everyone who asks receives, and everyone who searches finds. And for everyone who knocks, the door will be opened. Is there anyone among you who, if your child asks for bread, will give a stone? Or if the child asks for fish, will give a snake? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Let's pray. God, we thank you for this time. We pray, Lord, that you would reveal your words to us. And most importantly, reveal your presence to us. We pray that um, the word penetrates and that you would reveal something brand new today. Thank you for this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I find it fascinating that Jesus often compares the way we humanly ask to him. But do you see here how he says, if you then who are evil know how to good gifts give good gifts to your children, how much more will I, your Father in heaven, give good things to those who ask? You remember in Luke chapter 18, the, there was the parable of the widow and the unjust judge, and she keeps coming to the judge and says, grant me justice, grant me justice. The judge won't grant her justice because he's a good person, but he says, I better do it, otherwise she's going to keep bothering me. And Jesus says here again, he says, if an unjust judge would do that, how much more will your Father in heaven grant you justice? One who loves you, how much more will your Father in heaven grant you justice? I think it's ridiculous 
at first glance that Jesus would always compare God who gives who 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 answers your prayer to how we human beings do it. I think it's really interesting that he always says, "Look, this is how you guys ask and you still get things. Here's where I am in a whole different space." I don't know why he would do that. See, if I was God, I would be I wouldn't even compare myself to humans. I wouldn't even I wouldn't even tell you a parable. <laughs> I wouldn't even tell you a parable because I'm God. I'm so other. But there's something here that, 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 that speaks. And I think it's because when it comes to asking, Jesus knows that we have the tendency to ask based on what human beings can give us. This is our natural tendency. And he doesn't actually rebuke it. He says, okay, ask according to your template." And then switch that ask to something else. Okay, ask according to your template. Okay, you need a car. Okay, you need a house. Okay, you're looking for a spouse. Come, engage with me, but I have something much more. See, Jesus understands and recognizes and points us to a different type of asking. Now, we are used to asking based on what we know, so... I feel like this generation, we scroll through Instagram or Facebook and we see the best of highlights. We take all of that and we'll, we'll mend it with our context and we say, God, that's what we want. Hey, God, that's what I want. I remember when in 2006 when I first started doing music. Um, I was 21, 22. And all I could ask God is, I want to be like Coldplay and Kanye. <laughs> Make me a mix. Because those were the templates that I saw. And I said, if I could do that, then that means God will use me. I don't think that was a bad ask. I just think it was a deeply, um, it was a deeply lower version. It was a much lower version of what God actually wants to give. And so Jesus understands this, that we do things based on our templates and what has been done before. I want to suggest to you that the new man, the new spirit, the new, the rebirth, the spiritual life, the new person that God has created us to be, has the ability to enter into asking at a much deeper level. And I want us to get there. I want us, to, I want our asking to go from strength to strength. So I want to ask you a question. How are you asking in worldly measurements right now? Don't condemn yourself for it. Just how are you asking in worldly measurements? Because I wonder if in the new person, God will help us approach these, these worldly measurements in a different way. Check this out. Psalm 37. It's a very, very popular passage. It's one of my favorites. And there are two verses that are very popular because we kind of take it in our own way. So this is Psalm 37, verses 3 to 4. Trust in the Lord and do good, so that you will live in the land and enjoy security. Take delight in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. So first of all, when I was young, when someone said, take delight in the Lord, I used to think that was the most boring thing someone could do. Right? Take delight in the Lord. What does it actually mean, take delight in the Lord? And what does it mean that he will give you the desires of your heart? 
But if you read it this way, take delight in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Not that he will grant everything that you ask for, but he will place in you the desires of your heart. So when God gives you the desires of your heart, he doesn't grant your wishes. He places in you the desires from heaven. That's a different way of reading it. And so asking from heaven that the how much more, you know, when Jesus says, how much more will I give? How much more am I than, than the evil fathers and mothers of the world? How much more am I than the unjust judge? He asking from heaven is not looking to the, the unjust judge and the mothers and fathers to give. It's actually asking from heaven. It's a, it's a different paradigm of who's actually giving the desires to you. You're not, you're not looking for God. When you, when you pray, then the spiritual person doesn't pray necessarily looking for their desired outcome, but they're entering into God's desired outcome for the situation. And this is a different way of praying. But we begin with what we know. And that's okay. But when we begin there, we're not going to end there. See, the normal Christian life, the new man, the new spiritual being, doesn't just pray for things at uh, a level of what they see. We, ex- we use faith and we enter into the heavenlies and we start to say, God, I don't know if this is best, but I trust you and I'm tracking with you and I'm, I'm trusting that you will give me the desires for me to even pray. This is different. That what is the location? What is the location of your original desire? Is it something from you know? Is it something that you've seen? Is it a combination of different people's lives? Is it, is it a, are you pulling from different ideas? Is this like a Pinterest board where you're taking these colors and you're putting it all together? What is the location of your desire? And I want to say to you that in the new person that God has created us and that we're going to let him take new management over our life and we're going to let him undragon us and we're going to let him give, we're going to take his grace of restraint on our life. When we do all of those things, we then start to ask and petition in a different way. Not grant me the desires, but place in me your desires. And that's what delight in God does. Now we're going to close with the idea of delight because this is my 10-year-old self that was really concerned about heaven because I thought it would be quite boring. Because if all we had to do was just pray and have Bible study, I was like, what am I going to do in heaven? And so delight, is the main topic, and this is how we're ending today. I'm speaking to my 10-year-old self, and in order to do that, we're going to go back to the beginning in Genesis 3 and just read the few verses that changed human history. So remember, God creates the world, and he says, this is good. And even on day six, when he, when, when he creates uh, man and woman on the first account of creation, he says, this is very good. So God takes delight in his creation. Delight is extremely important. If you've never heard about delight, you better do some research. Delight is the most is one of the most important aspects about our relationship with God. And so 
Look at this in, in, so here's delight, where God is delighted with this handiwork. And then in, and in chapter three, we see this, we see the enemy. And he says in verse, uh, one, did God say, you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? He already distorts everything by the question. The question is ridiculous. Did he really say you can't eat from anything? And the woman said, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, nor shall you touch it or you shall die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not die for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Here's delight. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. Remember, the word delight and desire are also in Psalm 37. But we see something interesting here because the enemy presents a situation and Eve In her, she hasn't done a good job with negotiation inside. She thinks that God might be withholding something from her. And so her delight and her desire, what she thought was delightful and what she thought was to be desired was compromised because she didn't know that God would never withhold anything from her. And so at the very beginning of how we got into this mess, it was because we had a corrupted desire and a corrupted delight. Can you imagine that we all died because their delight and desire were corrupted? Do you see how important delight and desire are? Because what actually happened was is this. See, God's delight is juxtaposed with Eve's delight. And God's original design was to actually give us delight and desire. That's why he gave us domain. He was so thrilled to create humanity so that we could actually have domain over the animals, the ecosystem, the way things grew. We would actually have domain over it. That was his design, was for us to have delight and desire. And what happened was that was the thing that was corrupted And it's through our corrupted desire that we died. That was what required Jesus to come in human form, die in our place, resurrect, so that you and I can have salvation and then restore what true delight and desire would actually be. This whole thing is to restore delight and desire in God, the Father, through Jesus. The whole concept the whole arc, part of the arc of our, of our Christian life is to restore what it means to have heavenly desire and heavenly delight. And the new man in our new heavenly garments must learn to have heaven's desire. See, desire is so important. And I feel like we do things different, weird things with desire and delight. We either run away from it because it's unholy Or we take it and we manipulate it and we make it what we want it to be. And this is why heaven is an ecosystem where God's intention flows in and through us. We are meant to, I think Pastor Ko said, the Trinity is like a dance, right? 
the, the Holy Spirit, God, Jesus is like a dance. And we are meant to dance with God in delight. And some of us have never experienced what it feels like to have the delight and desire of God. It's either just rule-based, but we've never actually entered into delight in God. See, we can only know the desires of God if we delight in Him. He can only give us desires because we have to first like Him. We have to first be overjoyed by Him. We have to be consumed by Him in order for Him to know what to give us. You can't know what to give your wife for her birthday if you're not overjoyed by her. Because when you're overjoyed by her, you know what she likes. And then you can give her something that will warm her heart. And I feel like we're at a crossroads in our culture even in interpersonal relationships and our families, where we've forgotten how to delight and desire, but take it seriously because delight and desire was what was first corrupted for us to die. And I know for a fact that Jesus wants to restore delight and desire in him so that we can start asking real things. We can start to get into the game. We have to be very careful with false delights. And there's some of you here that there's things that you like and you know that they're not fully from God, but you actually like them. You actually like it. You're fascinated by it. The eyes, it all looks appealing. It looks pleasing. And what God wants to say is, look, I have more for you. It's not that I'm trying to take those things away only. I have more for you. I have real delight. I have real desire that's waiting for you. And there's something else in us at work, just like with Eve, that gave into false delight and false desire. See, when God, when all negotiations are taken off the table, and when God becomes your boundary, and when he becomes your portion, the only thing you delight in is the hand, is everything that's in his hand. And when he, when he, when he puts things in his hand, that's what you eat from. Nothing else is in your view. And so the new man, the new spiritual person in you, will only eat from the hand of God. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your mercy. Thank you, Lord, for equipping us with the new spirit within us to live a victorious life. We pray for those of us here that are struggling with delight and desire. We pray, Lord, that all the ways that our delight and desire have been stolen from us, we know that you will restore it a hundredfold right now. And that it is your intention in the kingdom to help us function in true delight and true desire and you will give us the real desires to pray for. That might start with what we know and the parameters and the templates that we're used to, but that will move us and encourage us into heavenly desire. We thank you, Lord, for what you're doing and what you will be doing. We bless your name. We pray, Lord, for your grace of revelation and your grace for transformation today. And we ask all this in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.